0: let's pray once more. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend some time in John's first letter, this beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus, his closest personal friend while he walked the earth. Uh, Help us as we come to this passage this morning, speak to us by your Holy Spirit and enable us to respond in obedience to you wherever we find ourselves uh, in this text this morning. Help us to take the next step that you would call us to take in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to open with a little bit of a story uh, that Russell Moore shared during a sermon on the subject of whatever happened to sin, and he shares the following story. He says, this guy wanted to talk to me about Calvinistic dating sites for Reformed singles, and at the time, I didn't even know that such a thing existed, but as he was explaining it to me, apparently, it's the sort of site you can go on just like any other singles or dating site, except instead of just specifying what age of person you're looking for and what sort of hobbies you're looking for, you specify how many points you know. Whether or not somebody's young earth or documentary hypothesis or framework hypothesis or whatever, it's just this lengthy list of theological qualifications. And he's asking me about whether or not I thought this was a good thing, and for a few minutes I was a little disoriented because this was someone I didn't know. He was from a different denominational background than mine. He was from a different state than I was in. And we were having a very, our very first conversation. In fact, our only conversation. And it was all just a blur of all these questions about theological topics and that seemed very abstract to him, like the impassibility of God, along with these ethical questions. But something about this particular question about the dating site seemed not to be so abstract to him. It was almost as though he had given a great deal of thought to this, which I found odd since he was apparently married. And then in a few minute, minutes in this winding conversation, it became even more clear that that's exactly where the problem was. He was, started talking through and talking about the very difficult situation that he was in in his marriage. And he started talking through what he saw as the biblical grounds for divorce and for remarriage, and he was making the case for the exception clauses in Matthew and 1 Corinthians and as to why it looked like his marriage probably wasn't going to be salvageable, and why he thought that he fit within this exception clause because of the situation with his wife, which he counted as fitting into what Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 as the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Except that I didn't really understand this because it didn't seem to me from his conversation as though his wife wanted to leave, and it also didn't seem that his wife was an unbeliever. But he kept talking about how they were unequally yoked in their marriage and even though both of them were professing Christians, but because they had different levels of spiritual maturity that they should probably separate. And then he started talking about how she was not responding well to his spiritual leadership and that she didn't respond well to their family devotional times because she just didn't understand the rich theology of the Word of God. She didn't understand why she shouldn't be watching these television programs that were awful and filled with immoral things. She didn't get that. She, didn't, she wasn't able to lead their children the way that he wanted to lead their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And he says, you know, we just have these ongoing theological skirmishes. And he immediately started to move on to another theological topic. But I was interested in what he just said. So I asked, tell me a little bit more about the sort of theological skirmishes that you and your wife have. And he said, well, one of the main ones is over the issue of Christian liberty and alcohol. I said, okay, well, tell me how that debate happens in your home. And he said, well, she just becomes very angry and mad at my position on Christian liberty and alcohol. I said, well, then when does that typically happen? And he said, well, it typically happens whenever I exercise my Christian liberty when it comes to alcohol. And I said, okay, well, walk me through that scenario. What does that look like? He said, well, when I get home from work, I I like a little nip of wild turkey. He said, and then usually as the night goes on, I'll have a 12-pack or so of beer, and I'll drink that until I go to sleep. Now, although I don't have personal experience with this, I've been listening to country music since I was in utero. So I know that a 12-pack of beer, until you pass out, is drunk. I don't care who you are. And I said, well, let's start talking about this issue of drunkenness. And he became very agitated and said, I've never been drunk. This isn't an issue of drunkenness, and you're starting to sound like my wife. Now, he wanted to move on to all these other theological topics, and I was amazed by the whole conversation, and immediately what I did after I left him was call a pastor friend of mine and say, you won't believe how deluded and self-deceived this guy is. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's exactly the same situation I'm often in, except for the 12th pack of beer. But with protecting myself and protecting my own sins and being quick to acknowledge and point out the sins of other people, and using very cleverly sounding theological arguments to mask it all. I'm very good at protecting my own theological justifications. This man was able to think very deeply about the Bible. He was able to think very deeply about doctrine and ethical questions, but he wasn't able to see what seems so obvious to me, the sin in his own life. And that's not an unusual situation. And I share that opening illustration to say that we're very good. We have 20-20 vision when it comes to the sin in other people's lives, but often lack the appropriate eyewear, soul eyewear, to see the sin in our own lives. And this is the state that Scripture says that we're all in, and it's a state that we all need to be delivered from. And so that's our theme this morning is the, the subject of sin, everyone's favorite subject. But if, you, if I can remind you quickly, um, last week, John has four purposes for writing this letter, and we highlighted what those four purposes were. They were, number one, to promote joy, number two, to prevent sin, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, number three, to protect the truth, and number four, to provide assurance to us as God's people. And there are three avenues of assurance that John is going to take us on through this letter. And it's it's, it's not like these avenues are, are one road that leads directly into another road that leads directly into another road. Rather, think of it as more like a congested uh, intersection of the interstate where there's all kinds of roads converging together and you know, they're, they're, they're swirling around each other. And so John's going to come back to many of these themes again and again and again and, 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 and hit them from different angles. But those three main themes are doctrinal, that is what we believe in our heads about who Jesus Christ is, moral, how that truth affects our lives and our relationship to our sin and obedience to God and what he's called us to do in his word, and then relational, relational how that works itself out in love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So doctrinal, moral, and relational are the three avenues that John is going to continue to take us down. And this morning, we're going to look at the first of those avenues, which is moral. Well, it's the second of the two, but it's the first one he brings up. And it has to do with sin. The word sin is used in every verse from chapter 1 verse 7 to chapter 2 verse 2. He uses it at least six times, if not seven times. I I didn't put the specific number down. But he uses the word repeatedly again and again in these verses. So it is the clear theme of our passage this morning in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 to chapter 2 verse 2. But before we get into how we handle sin, which is what the theme of the sermon is going to be, we need to be helpful to have a definition, right? A definition of what we t- we're talking about when we talk about sin. Let's use the definition that John provides for us. If you'll look at 1 John chapter three, verse four, John defines what sin is. He says, "Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness." So, that's the most compact, straight to the point definition. of sin I think that you're going to get, especially in this book. But everyone who commits sin, he says, is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is our refusal as fallen creatures to submit to God's law, God's word. It's to see what God's word says about the way we are to live as his image bearers and behave insubordinately to that. Rebel against that. Ignore that. Or just conform to the parts that we like, but dismiss the parts that we don't. So that's what sin at its essence is. It's it's lawlessness. It's choosing to live our lives on our own terms, by our own ethics, and not according to those that are given to us in God's word. So the question that's before us this morning is the question that this text asks of us this morning, and that is, what is your, what is my relationship to our sin? Because we are all in relationship with our sin. The question is, is what are we doing about it? And how we do what we do about it, what our relationship to our sin is, John says, has every should have every impact on our relationship with God. Our relationship with our sin tells us a lot about our relationship with God. That's his point this morning. So there there are two ways that he's going to talk about that reveal if you handle sin this way, you're not in relationship with God. But there's one way where you are in relationship with God. And so this is a very important passage because we all have sin. And we all need to understand how the Bible calls us to handle it and what it tells us about our relationship with God. So I can really think of no more important topic um, than this one this morning. So the main theme is that your relationship with God or your relationship with sin tells you a lot about your relationship with God. And there are three ways to handle sin and they each reveal a lot about where we are with God. So let's look at those three ways to handle sin this morning. Here's the first one. We can excuse our sin. We can excuse our sin. Notice verses 8 and 10. We're going to read the first part of each one of those verses. This is what John says in 1 John 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin. So John has a scenario here of a person who says things like that. And if you're not one of those persons that says something like that, surely you know someone who would say something like that. I don't have any sin. There is no sin. I don't have it. Then verse 10 he says, if we say we have not sinned. So he says basically the same thing in two different ways at the beginning of verse 1 or verse 8 and verse 10. He says we have no sin or we've not sinned. So clearly there is a situation, a way to handle sin, which is just to excuse it, right? I don't have it. I haven't sinned. Now, lest we think that this is somehow some claim to perfection, this is, I don't think this is John's main point. He's not saying there are people around here who actually walk around and say that they're perfect, right? Most people are not going to say that. I mean, they, they're flawed. They make mistakes. You know, we're only human, They'll say things like that, but they're not going to say, I'm perfect. So I think what John has in mind is the claim that what I do and how I live is not wrong. Now, that is much more common. So, and if you tell me that what I'm doing is wrong, you're judgmental. You're dangerous, and that's hate speech. don't you tell me how to live my life. My God doesn't have a problem with my choices. Now that's excusing sin. And that is very prevalent in our society today. In fact, one pastor I was reading this morning, or this week, not this morning, uh, writes the following testimony. He says, I was in a church one time preaching through 1 Corinthians in a conference, and we came to that section in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, talking about sexual immorality, and talking about how if a man does not know how to act toward his betrothed or engaged, closely engaged, then let them marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so I was talking through that, and just as an aside, as a point of application, I said, you know, you shouldn't put yourself in a place of temptation with these endlessly long engagements while you're trying to get everything together for some special wedding ceremony. You find that person, do whatever you need to do to to, to get some counseling, get to know each other well, but then post haste, with all due speed, protect yourself by marrying. And it was just an aside, and the pastor says that after the service was over, there was a couple who came up with their grown son and his fiance, and they were really upset about what I had said. And they talked about, you know, you said that, you said that, I heard, we heard what you said, and we, that's kind of legalistic because Chad and Tina here, they've been engaged for a long time and they've been dating for a long time before that and they're waiting until he gets finished with his graduate school, until she gets finished with her graduate program and they want to get settled in their jobs and they want to get settled in their careers and, and you're saying all that stuff and that's not a very helpful thing to say. And this pastor said, well, you know, you know, you may be right. And maybe I spoke that with an undue authority here because I don't think the Bible gives a particular length to an engagement necessarily. I was just given a principle. He said, there's an exception to all sorts of things, of course. And I just think in this case that we ought to just thank God that in the case of Chad and Tina... That by the power of the Spirit, God has preserved Chad and Tina from the sin of fornication. Right, Chad? Now, I haven't been invited back there since, the pastor said. (laughs) But it was clear in that moment that it was a scarier prospect for these parents of a grown son. It was scarier for them that their son might not make it in American society than that he might not make it to heaven. Because ongoing, unrepentant fornication lands you in hell. And that's what John is saying in this passage, that we have a tendency to excuse our sin. We'll make all sorts of arguments for why what God's Word says doesn't apply to us. That our circumstances are special, that they're unique, and God understands But what does John say about those who make this claim? Look at verse 8 again. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice the claim that God's word is truth. And when we deny our sin, we reveal that we're refusing to submit to his truthful word and we're deceiving ourselves. We say things like, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, that just reveals that God's word has no work, no place in your life. A Christian does not excuse their sin. That's John's point. And then in verse 10, notice he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we're calling God a liar. We are living under deception, and we're calling God a liar. Now, how can we call God a liar? Say, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I just said that wasn't right for me, or whatever, or any ways we excuse our sin. Because God has said everyone's a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we say that we have not sinned, or we say we have no sin, we're calling God a liar. And we're deceiving ourselves. We're living in an alternate, fake reality. A life that doesn't reckon with what God says about right or wrong is purposely, intentionally, or not, living out of step with reality. So that's the first way to handle sin, and it's a terrible way to handle sin. To excuse it it results in deception, it results in calling God a liar, which is not something I want to hear him say about me on the day of judgment when I stand before him. You lived your whole life calling me a liar. I mean, imagine an authority figure saying that to you. Now imagine the God of the universe saying that to you. So we don't want to call God a liar. We don't want to deceive ourselves. We want his word to speak truth to us. And we don't want to excuse our sin. That's one way to handle it, though. Here's the second way that sin can be handled we can choose our sin. We can excuse our sin. We can choose our sin. Notice verses 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him, John says. We've heard this from Jesus. And we proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he gives us a little mini doctrine of God, who God is. He doesn't tell us what light means. He just says, God is light, and there's no no darkness in him. Okay, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time explaining that, but I just want you to see why he brings it up. Why does he say that? Well, verse 6 explains. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, and he's light, he walks And lives in moral purity and holiness. While we walk in darkness, but yet we claim to have fellowship with him. What does John say about that? We lie and do not practice the truth. So he's got another category of people here. This is a different category than verses 8 and 10. Verses 8 and 10 is all about those who excuse or deny their sin. This is about people who would claim to be a Christian. Claim to walk with God. Claim to have fellowship with God. And yet, don't. Because they're living lives of hypocrisy. They they know God is light. In him is no darkness. But they walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with the one who is light. And John says, can't be. You can't choose your sin." Choose to live in your sin, practice your sin, hold on to your sin, and keep walking with God. He says, if we claim to walk with God, we'll be like God, we'll want to be like God. And he says, there are people who say that they have fellowship with God, but who live contrary to the way that God is. They might say things like, I love Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with his church. I love Jesus, but I lie consistently and regularly and habitually and lack serious integrity at work. I love Jesus, but don't come see me at home. Don't come watch my life with my family. Just let me put on the Christian face. I love Jesus, but I have no prayer life. And I never read the Bible. What does it mean to walk? That's, that's, the, that's the verb John uses here in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Now, walking implies continued, ongoing motion, right? I think it's the same thing he means in chapter 3. Verse 4 when he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So to walk is to live a life of of, of practicing unrighteousness and ungodliness unrepentantly. It's to claim to have fellowship with God and yet walking away consistently, regularly, that is totally contrary to who he is and what he has called us to do. There was an article uh, several years ago that was written by a person who works um, in an abortion clinic who said the following, You know, most people assume that the typical young woman coming in to receive an abortion is a secularist who denies the humanity of an unborn child. She said, but that's not who I see in my clinic. I don't see people coming in and talking about clumps of cells and masses of tissue. I don't hear anyone talking about the autonomy of their own body. As a matter of fact, this writer says, almost everybody that I have come in, he's seen come in here seeking an abortion is someone who knows that this is a human being, who knows that this is a person, who knows that this is a child. And she says, in fact, most of the people that, I have, that have come through here are Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants. She said, and they never, as they're waiting for this abortion, justify this with all the political slogans. She said, the Roman Catholic patient sometimes will even have a rosary there and will say, I know this is a sin against God, and I'm going to go to confession for it. And the evangelical Protestants will say, I know this is an awful thing and a sin against God, but you know, once saved, always saved. And this is precisely the sort of false gospel that has been propagated throughout our land, and it's not unique to America. It's as old as Romans 6. Romans 6, chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul was writing to the Romans, said, shall we sin all the more so that grace will abound? using God's grace and God's forgiveness as a license to do whatever we want to do? No. You know what John says about people who continually write checks on God's grace, just abusing it, not their own bank account, not their own blood, it's Christ's blood, and they just keep writing checks keep writing checks intentionally and saying, well, he's, he for, praise God, he's forgiven me. Praise God, he's forgiven me. I have no love for him. I don't desire to follow him, but I'm just, I'm just drawing from the blood. Just drawing from the blood. You know what John says about people like that? You're a liar, and you don't practice the truth. Don't claim to be a Christian. It's a disrespectful dishonor to the name of Christ that you would walk around claiming to be one of his and look nothing like him and lie to the world about who our Jesus is. Stop it. Do not claim to be a Christian if you don't love Christ, walk with Christ, desire to follow Christ. Don't do it. John says no. So, John has a category here of something that many, especially in our cultural moment, do not, cannot agree with or see. He has a category. For somebody who can claim to be something they're not. This is not a popular idea in our day. You are whatever you want to be. And don't let anybody tell you you're not. So says the world. But John has a category here for someone who can claim something and yet not be something. Says someone who can claim to be a Christian but not be a Christian. Listen brothers and sisters. We don't get to have a relationship with God on our own terms. That's not how it works. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You can't serve yourself and your sin and him too. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have Jesus as Lord. Listen, if he's not calling the shots, he's not paying the debts. If he's not calling the shots, he's not paying the debts. In other words, if he's not Lord, he's not savior. So that's what John says here. We can choose our sin, right? That's one way to handle it, but you lose fellowship with God. And don't be deceived about that, John says, because why would John bring this up? Because there were false teachers in this that he's writing to immediately in this letter who were saying just that. Listen, it's Maybe they were saying things like, it's all about grace. You know, it's all about free forgiveness. And anything that you try to, you know, if you try to put obedience on there or try to say that we have to follow Jesus, well, that's just more works. And no, we don't do that. We're all about grace here. We're all about free, free forgiveness, free offer of the gospel. The, The gospel message makes no claim on you. It's just an announcement that God loves us and just wants our best, and just live however you want to live, just thank him every now and then. No, that's a false gospel, John says. So those are the the first two ways, and those are the ways that are dangerous. To excuse our sin or to choose our sin leads to deception. It leads to calling God a liar. It leads to not practicing the truth it leads to revealing that God's word has no place in our lives. But here's the third and final way. Now we get to some really good news. This is really good news. Okay, I know that's heavy. Sin is heavy. The reality of sin, the price of sin, it's terrible, it's awful. But here's the good news. Here's a third way we can handle sin, and it's the best possible way. And it's the way many of us in this room are currently dealing with our sin. And if you're not, you can get in on it this morning and it's a great life, okay? Number three, we can lose our sin, okay? You can excuse it, you can choose it, or you can lose it. And here's how you lose it. Look at verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as God is in the light, Then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, we don't get the blood cleansing us from all sin in the other two scenarios, but we do in this one. And what's the condition? We walk in the light as he is in the light. We'll get to that in a second. Then verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this is good news. We can lose our sin. How? John says, by walking in the light as God is in the light. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean, now listen, hear me here, it does not mean that you never sin. Okay? Walking in the light does not mean that you never sin. People who never sin don't have to confess their sins. That's what John calls people to do here. People who never sin don't have to trust an advocate and a savior named Jesus Christ who died for those sins. So it doesn't mean you never sin. Walking in the light does not mean that you never sin, but it does mean that you don't deny it or live in it. That's what walking in the light is. It's the opposite of the first two ways. It means you don't deny it, you don't excuse it, and you don't choose to live in it. It means that you don't want to sin. You would, how many of you in this room, don't have to show your hands just in your own heart, mind, and soul, would say, if God would take my sin away from me right now, he, please do it. Please do it. That's the sign of a Christian. It's the way a Christian talks. We, I want so much to be done with my sin, I'd really rather, I, there are days I just want to die. Not in some sort of you know sadistic or or, or wrong way, but really just to be done with the struggle of sin. I hate that it clings and I have to fight it. And it feels so ingrained in my soul, I don't want to sin. Even when I want to sin, I don't want to sin. And only Christians understand that. Even when we sin, we don't want to sin. We hate it when we've done it. And that's why John's writing this letter. Notice, and I should have said this up front. Um, it's, I think it's such a good, he's being such a good pastor. When he says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, he knows that when he comes in to talking about sin with believers and, and, and wading into this very sensitive, difficult reality, that he speaks to them as one whom he loves and has compassion for. And I hope, I pray, I have been praying, that that would be my demeanor. I don't say this in any, I don't want to say this from any sort of grandstanding platform. I am a fellow sinner, a fellow disciple who needs Jesus just as much as all of us do. All your pastors would say that. We're looking to the same Christ you are. We're not on a higher spiritual plane. We're just needy beggars alongside of you telling others where to find food that we ourselves are seeking to find. We don't want to sin. Sin becomes more the exception than the rule. It's not the dominant thing of our lives, but it is present in our lives. And I love the wonderful biblical balance that John gives us here. You notice... He's neither too permissive nor is he too punitive. Did you see that in how he handles sin? He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you in chapter 2, verse 1, so that you won't sin. He's not telling us all about the grace of God of confessing our sin so that we'll just go, Sin. He so said, I'm not telling you all this so that you'll love sin and just want to sin and walk in sin. I'm writing it so you won't sin. He's not being permissive. But neither is he too punitive. And he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. See, John is neither too punitive or too passive or permissive. And that's what makes him a good pastor. And that's why he can refer to us as his little children. So to to walk in the light, just to summarize it, means that we don't want to sin, But we do sin, we don't walk in sin, we don't deny our sin, we don't refuse to confess our sins, but rather we confess them. Walking in the light means, think about it, when you, uh, at my house, you know, um, when when we're in the living room, and my wife and I always talk about this quite a bit, of how much light to keep in the room. She likes a well-lit room, and that's a very good thing. She likes to, you know, turn all the lamps on and turn the, uh, uh, the above lamp on and, uh, and to, to open the windows and get, flood the house with light. And I, I'm kind of cavemanish, and I like to keep it. And anybody visiting me in my office might think I'm weird because I keep all the lights down. I don't turn the because it feels too industrial and all that stuff. I just like it darker, like it darker. It's, and so we've had to work through all that stuff. But one of the main reasons... You can pray for us. We might need counseling. You, so one of the main reasons that I don't like to turn the really bright lights on is because it reveals how dirty our carpet is. But I'm just living in deception, right? I mean, really. I mean, we know what's there. You know, we have three children. We know it's going to get messy in there. But it reminds me of all the spots that are there that I haven't seen. And see, that's what walking in the light is like. Right, when, when we begin to have fellowship with God and, and walk with him, man, do the lights get cranked up in our life. They, all the lights come on. The attitude lights, they come on. You know, the impulse and motive lights come on. You know, sin's deeper than just behavior, right? It's way down here and why we do what we do. But that stuff gets cranked on, and we start to see, woo, and we can be like cockroaches just fleeing, you know, no cockroaches in the house, I hope. But anyway, we can be like that. But no, we, but, but just because the light's on, right, doesn't mean all those stains weren't there. Just the, the new light gives visibility to what's already there. And, and that's going to happen with us as we walk with the Lord. The light gets cranked up because we're walking with him who is light, and we're going to feel really dark, like see all kinds of stains we didn't see before. And we might think that as a result of that, well, I'm probably not a Christian. No, you're just walking really closely with God. People who walk really closely with God feel themselves to be really sinful. That's a marker of being a child of God is how sinful you feel yourself to be as you walk with God because you're getting really close with the light. You're walking in the light. And so that's why John says in verse 9, we got to confess our sins, right? Because we're going to see things about ourselves. We're going to see behaviors and motives and attitudes that are contrary to what God has called us to do. We're going to hate it. We're not going to want to do it. And we're going to have to say, God, that's sin. That greed, that lust, that pride, that impatience, that selfish ambition, that anger, all that, that's sin. Forgive me. Forgive me. And we agree with God, on what he says about our lives. That's what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God. It's, it's saying, yep, he's right. That's sin. And I agree. And so we confess it. And then, according to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, we not only confess our sins, but we seek to renounce them. We seek to get rid of them. We seek to push them out of our lives. That's a lifelong battle. It's never completely perfect in this life, but we are waging war. We are committed to fighting our sin and not relaxing and getting passive and just letting sin work its way out in our lives. So what's the result of that attitude of walking in the light? Well, it means that we can have fellowship with each other. You see that in verse 7? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, you might not expect him to say that. Because it sounds like it's all about fellowship with God. But he says, no, actually, when we commit to fight our sin and walk in the light, we can have fellowship with each other. You know what builds true gospel churches? Groups of sin fighters. You know what destroys gospel churches? People who live in sin and take it out on the church. That's what kills unity. It destroys churches. Our sin has massive relational consequences. You may not have thought about that. That needs to be another tool in our arsenal. We don't just fight sin because we want to glorify God and honor God, but we also want to fight sin to to preserve the damage it does to our relationships. Your sin and my sin never only affects us. It affects others. But if you fight sin, that too has a massive relational benefit. And that's what John says. We can have fellowship with one another. We can walk in the light together. And notice this. Here's the, here's the closing. And I'm going to wrap up with this because this is, this is beautiful. Here's what happens when we confess our sin, when we choose to lose it, when we don't excuse it or choose it. He says, number one, verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. Number two, according to verse 9, God is faithful and just To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No sin that won't be washed and cleansed and wiped away. All because of the blood of Jesus. Now notice John's phrase there. He says that if we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just. It is right for God to forgive us. Now that may not be a question that you've ever wrestled with in your mind in Scripture. But it is one of the main questions that Scripture deals with. How can God be God and forgive sin? That is the question of the Bible. How can God, who is light, perfect, pure, holy, dwell with those who are unrighteous, unholy, guilty, and sinful? That's wrong. Listen, we would would kick a judge off the bench in our county if he went around just forgiving criminals. He's unfit to judge. If he can't execute judgment. And yet millions of people have no problem with that when it comes to God. Just going around just dispensing forgiveness to people. Like that's right. It is wrong to forgive people who have sinned. Without a subsequent payment for that sin. And that's what we have. And that's why John says God can be just and faithful to forgive us because of verse 1 where it says we have an advocate with the father that is a defense attorney someone who stands in our place and says don't judge them i've been judged and that's jesus and we also have a propitiation big important word which means someone who has died in our place to avert the wrath and judgment of god away from us so that we are not judged for our sin and that too is christ So the reason that we can lose our sin, that we can give it up, is because Jesus will cleanse us from it. He will forgive us of it. He will advocate for us, and he will propitiate all of God's wrath against that sin so that we can be finally and fully delivered and saved from sin. And he says, John says, this message is for the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 2. He's not talking about universalism, that everybody's going to be saved and that by the work of Jesus. He's not saying that. He's saying this message is for everybody. we got to tell everybody about this. Listen, don't excuse your sin. Don't choose your sin. You can lose your sin. Here's how. Jesus came, lived, died. If you will confess your sins, agree with God about what he has said about your life, if you will forsake that sin and say, I don't want it anymore, I'm going to fight against it, imperfectly but really, I'm going to fight against it, I don't want it in my life. I want to cling to Jesus. He will advocate for you. He will propitiate your sin. And he will bring you safely into fellowship with God forever. And I close with this. This is a sign of the saved. We talk, that's what we called this series. Signs of the saved. Here's the first sign. Saved people don't deny their sin. They don't excuse it. And they don't live in it. They don't choose it. But rather, they fight against it. And when they fail, which we do daily, we confess our sin and we trust Jesus' atonement to pay for it. That's what we do. That's what saved people do. We confess it and we trust Jesus to pay for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time together in your word this morning, for this opportunity to do some real soul analysis of our sin and to bring it into the light of your word. And we pray that you, would, that you would both convict and encourage us this morning, that none of us would leave either too permissive or too punitive in our views of sin, but that we would recognize sin is serious, that it's dangerous, but it is no match for the incomparable mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to confess, help us to walk in the light, help, help us not to excuse or choose our sin, but rather to lose it, knowing that joy and fellowship with God and fellowship with one another is on the end of that loss. And that makes no loss at all, but only gain. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.